we read the word of the Lord this morning, congregation, as we find it in the book of Revelation. We're going to be reading Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, on page 1219 in the Pew Bibles, page 1219. Now, undoubtedly, you've probably forgotten this, but I think it was one of the last times I was invited to preach here. We looked at the first of Christ's seven letters to the churches of Asia Minor in Revelation 2, the first letter to the church in Ephesus. And so today we come to the second letter to the church in Smyrna, beginning at verse 8 of chapter 2. Let us listen together now to this word that the Lord speaks to us. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who is an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. May the Lord bless this reading and our hearing this morning of his holy word. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, as is always the case when we gather as God's people on the Lord's day to hear the word of the Lord, so the Lord speaks to us this morning. It's a letter by the risen, ascended, glorified Christ who has the stars of the seven churches who are, we're told, in chapter 1, the messenger angels, and if I might, by way of extension, the courier who comes to you, otherwise known as a minister, with something, not of of himself, but a letter that has been given and trusted to him. By the way, if you think of a courier or a mailman or a male woman, I don't know whether you know even the name of the person that deposits mostly junk mail in your box. Every Saturday is my day to get mail at our house, and invariably, it's junk. It goes in the round pile. Well, when we get a letter, when the Lord speaks to his people, as he does to the church in Smyrna, one of the seven churches of Asia Minor, And note, seven churches. There were more churches in Asia Minor than these seven. These are real churches with real challenges to whom Christ writes a very direct word by way of letter carried to them by the one whom he appoints to bring the message, the letter. But note the number seven, not by accident. Numbers in Revelation are never accidental. The number seven is particularly symbolic of the fullness, the completeness, which is to say that these seven letters are representative. 
They speak to the whole church in all of its history from the time of Christ's first coming until the time of his coming again at the end of the age. It's a word in season that I bring to you this morning, hopefully unimpaired, undiminished, and faithfully opened up. You are hearing from Christ himself who walks among the seven lampstands. We are told that also in chapter 1 of Revelation. The lampstands are the witnessing church that in the world is bearing witness to the light, to the gospel testimony concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. That's their identity. And the Lord walks among them. He knows them like the back of your and my hand. He's intimately acquainted with our circumstances, our needs. Now, that isn't to say that this particular letter is I'm an interloping pastor. I don't know the congregation that well in Emmanuel, URC Burbank, whether this is in some particular way a word in season, but it is a word from Christ to the church. And no one loves the church more than the one who paid, even at great cost to himself, the inestimable price of his own precious blood, we are his blood-bought, redeemed people. And so he comes to us this morning with a word as it's spoken here to the church in Smyrna. Now, as I was thinking about this letter this past week, I was actually reminded of something my parents encouraged us to do as, a, as I was growing up as a little boy, and that was to read biographies of Christian ministers and pastors and missionaries, and it so happened that among them, I still have it, uh, tucked away somewhere in the basement. It's entitled, Through Gates of Splendor. It was written by a widow, Elizabeth Elliot, telling the story of her husband who ministered among the Alka Indians in South America. Why do I mention that? Because Jim Elliot is by Elizabeth, said to have once declared, he was martyred for his testimony to Jesus among those Indians, he is no fool who is willing to lose his own life if he has what is of greater value and cannot be lost. That's really the burden of this letter. One of the things you may know about these letters is most of them have a word of commendation, a word of praise from the Lord. You're doing well, my good and faithful servants. He takes note of that. But he also, in most instances, five out of the seven, issues as well a word of criticism or of condemnation. This is one of two letters where he has only good things to say to a beleaguered church that is in a circumstance of considerable suffering, even persecution. And he calls them in their context to be faithful even unto death. Now, as we look at the letter, the first thing I would have us notice just briefly is how the Lord Jesus Christ identifies himself. In all of these letters, 
he begins with a self-identification. These are not boys and girls, young people, these little messages you send by way of uh, Twitter or whatever the instrument you may be using, the media you may be employing. Uh, he takes the trouble to address them, identify them, and to identify himself. They're not tossed up unthinkingly. They're carefully crafted. In this particular instance, as is true of the other letters, his self-identification is critical to what he wants to say to the church. And what does he say of himself? These are the words of the Son of God. These are the words of him who is the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the ending, who is himself everlasting, more than that, eternal, always has been, ever will be, the God who is and who was and is to come, as we're told in the first chapter. He is, as the author of Hebrews says, if I might borrow that to get at the point here, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's not here for a moment, gone tomorrow. He's not one thing yesterday, something else today, and yet something further tomorrow. He is abidingly steadfast in all of his saving grace and interest toward his church. It's a bit of a comfort in a world that is evolving, as it likes to say, that is changing. Nothing is stable. Nothing is enduring. There's nothing that you can count on. There's no secure foundation. Well, in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whatever year, whatever century, in all times past, present, and future till Christ comes, he is the first and the last. But notice, he's also the one who died and who came to life. It echoes the language at the beginning of the book of Revelation in chapter 1 where he says, Fear not to John on the Isle of Patmos. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I, I alone, have the key to open the door or to close it of death and of Hades. I am, as our Lord says in the book of John, in John 11, the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. He who believes in me will what? Never die. I am the one who is able, as the way, the truth, and the life, who is from everlasting to everlasting, the ruler of the kings of the earth, victorious over sin, death, and hell, I have the authority to promise and to grant you the fullness of abundant life in my presence and in the presence of God upon his throne, world, 
without end. Now ask yourself the question, who on the earth can say of himself, what prince, whether of the church or of the state, what would-be power broker in our language could possibly identify himself and speak to us as one whose words are the words of the first and the last, of the one who died but conquered death, vanquished, took away its sting, so that those who are his, though they die, yet they live. That's how he identifies himself, and it's very important as we look now that he says this to this church, because this is a particular church, as I said earlier, it's not just a a sort of model or an exemplar with no actuality, it was a church, Smyrna, if you follow the route of the letters, if you were to look a map up this afternoon before you take your nap or thereafter and look in the back of your Bible perhaps, you'll see that section on the Mediterranean to the Uh, east of Italy, Rome, that is Asia Minor. Today, it's in Turkey. And if you were to make a roundabout as a courier bringing letters, you would start in Ephesus to the southwest, and you would go around in a great circle. By the way, this was in the news recently. Smyrna still exists. It's the city in Turkey today called Izmir. Uh, And it was a great city then, and it's a fairly significant city even today. Though I doubt there's any church present as a lampstand any longer in ancient Smyrna, contemporary Izmir. But this church, listen to what our Lord says about it. I know all the letters have that expression. I'm familiar with where you live. I walk among and live in the midst of my people. My eyes are like blazing fire. Nothing is hid. Nothing is secret. I know you better than the elders know you. I know you intimately, exactly where you are. I am well acquainted with it. I know your tribulation. Now, that word tribulation is a word often used in the New Testament for that kind of trouble that comes with being identified as a believer who trusts in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation and confesses that he and only he is Lord. Or as the book of Revelation puts it, he's the Lord of lords, not just a lord among lords, but he's the lord of lords. He's a king, not among kings, but he's king over all the kings. He is, after all, the ruler of the kings of the earth. And if you go about preaching as the apostle Paul did, we don't have any information in the book of Acts regarding this church, how it was planted, but probably on Paul's third missionary journey. And in many of the places where Paul preached in Asia Minor, he didn't get a ready reception by all. In fact, in a variety of places, and apparently that was true also in Smyrna, there were those who opposed him. 
particularly from among those who worshipped at the synagogue, who rejected the Christ and didn't confess his name, that he is the one of Old Testament promise as Savior and Lord. In fact, you'll find in the book of Acts that one of the things they said to the authorities when they brought forward their complaints against the Apostle Paul is, can you imagine that they are preaching and teaching, Paul and the other apostles, that there is but one who is Lord and his name is not Caesar. Well, that, that doesn't impress you per, perhaps here in these United States of the 21st century. Well, that's pretty serious business in the first century of the Christian era. In the period in which this church was founded, and in the world in which they lived, the city of Smyrna was among the most loyal and ardent devotees of the Roman imperial Caesars. Already 200 years before the coming of Christ, a great temple had been built in the city center to Dea Roma, that is, the goddess Rome, no separation of church and state, politics and religion in this world in which the church in Smyrna found itself. And you would have before the altar to the goddess Rome and to the emperor who was presently serving, in fact, early in the first century of the Christian era, 25 A.D., I believe, is the date. Uh, this city was granted by the emperor the, the wealth needed and the wherewithal to build another great temple to the god or goddess Rome, eternal Rome, and Rome's Caesars who took to themselves the name Curios. Lord. Now, why do I mention all of that? Well, it explains what our Lord says about the circumstance of this church. Their tribulation was born out of their unwillingness to let loose their grip on the confession they made regarding Jesus Christ, to whom they owed and gave themselves in full devotion and allegiance and even if necessary, at cost to their own person, they would not yield. They would not offer incense before the altar as prayers were offered to the goddess Rome and to the great Caesar seated in the imperial court in Rome itself. Their trouble stemmed from their confession and their allegiance to Jesus Christ. He also says, I know your poverty. Uh, what kind of poverty it was. The word that's used here for poverty is not the garden variety word for poor. That is, you can get by. You've got enough social security to pay the rent or the mortgage and have food on the table, but nothing much more than that. You can get by. Now, the word used here is destitute. 
And now you must know that Smyrna was a very prosperous city, second to Ephesus in Asia. Why were they not prospering? Well, we know later in the book of Revelation, there's that mysterious mark of the beast, and it's not some sort of a little uh, computer chip put into your uh, wrist or something of that sort or on your forehead. The mark of the beast was very much like what you might receive if you go to the theater or to some event, and they stamp, you go to the auto show, they stamp your hand, right? That way you can go, come and you can go, you can return after having had a little bite to eat to the event, the exhibit, whatever it might be. Well, in this context, if you wanted to sell your wares in the marketplace, if you wanted to carry on in the commerce, the economic life and flourishing prosperity of the city of Smyrna, well, it was all tied up just as the politics was tied up with swearing allegiance to the emperor, it was also tied up with worshiping the gods of the various trade guilds. It was a tough thing to be a Christian in the city of Smyrna. It's hardly worth comparing to possibly your boss telling you that you can't have this job or you're to be fired or you're not to be promoted because you're unwilling, though it is not a work of necessity or of mercy, to work on the Lord's day. They were in constant opposition. They probably were much like the church of the Hebrew Christians to whom the book of Hebrews was written, where the author of Hebrews says in chapter 10 that when they were deprived of their earthly possessions and stripped bare of all that they had accumulated, they took it willingly because they knew they had a new and better country for which they were, by faith, eagerly awaiting, like the saints who have gone before us. Abraham, who looked for a city that has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Like the prophets of the Old Testament economy, who never entered into the fullness of their inheritance, but walked by that faith which is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. You see, that's why this letter has no condemnation. The Lord applauds. He expresses as the church's Savior and Lord, even sympathetic high priest, I know where you live and the trouble that you're in the poverty that you are enduring, but you're rich. We'll come back to that in a bit, in a moment. How could they be destitute, experiencing tribulation, also slander? Reminds me of our Lord's words in the Sermon on the Mount as he speaks of the citizen of God's kingdom. Blessed are you when, me, when men speak ill, slander you for my names, for righteousness' sake. For great is your reward in the kingdom of heaven. They were slandered. They said things about them that were untrue. 
particularly within the Jewish community as he goes on, those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan who have been moved to speak even as Satan has spoken, that which is untrue as the father of lies, you are being spoken of in a very bad and slanderous fashion. Now, you always have to be very careful with contemporary analogs, but I find it very striking that in our culture, if as a Christian, with mercy and grace in your heart and a desire that they should come to know the Lord even as you know him, if you were to say that, well, in God's word, marriage is between a man and a woman, That's it. And that's the way of God's will. Of what will you be accused? Of something called a phobia. Worse than that, you'll be called a hater. Now, there are some who in Christ's name act in a way that sounds and looks oftentimes unhappily hateful. Not very gospel-like. But nevertheless, on the question, what does the word of the Lord teach? I hold fast to it. Come what may. And it may well be that even as it was true of the church in Smyrna, you will be slandered. You will not be spoken of in a commendable light. People will say things about you that are untrue. That's not all he says. He says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Interesting, that language, for ten days. Not to be taken literally. Ten is again a number in the book of Revelation that is symbolic. It's probably an allusion to, as you may recall from your reading of the scriptures in Daniel 1, when Daniel and his three friends in Nebuchadnezzar's court said, we're not going to eat these meats that are devoted to your gods. We will not partake in your heathen worship, idolatry was very angry, but they were tested. They weren't vegans, but they only had vegetables for 10 days, and at the end of the 10 days, they were more healthy, wealthy, wise, and splendid than all the other wise and powerful men of Nebuchadnezzar's court. Strikingly, the Lord does not say to the church in Smyrna, you'll be whisked away on a flowery bed of ease and it's going to go better and better for you if you just carry on in the way of your loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ. There may be gospel preachers, prosperity preachers today who say things like that, and it's very popular, but our Lord doesn't flatter the church with flattery nor with words that are untrue. He speaks the truth, and he speaks it always in love. I know your circumstance. 
It's difficult. Be faithful even unto death. Now, you may say, that's a, Dr. Venema, that's a very, you bring a letter, but it's rather sobering. What are we to make of this? Well, it may be sobering, but it's also couched in language that is rich in gospel promise. Notice again the words at the beginning, I am the one. These are the words of the first and the last, the one who died and who came to life who has the keys of death and of Hades, who will grant to you, who by my spirit remain faithful, even if it be at the high cost of your prosperity, what people might say about you, and even, God forbid, cost you your life. Do not be afraid, for I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Reminds me of the language. We like to sing it with lust, joyfully and loudly. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life. Also, the body they may kill, but your truth, O Lord, abides still. The second death in the book of Revelation is that to which believers are no longer subject. They may kill the body. You may suffer martyrdom, says the Lord Jesus Christ, but you will live. And not live for a season, live forever in my presence in the paradise of God, in the kingdom of God, when it comes in its fullness, you will enjoy life without end in a world purged of any remainder of sin or opposition to my cause. The worst that they can do to you is take from you life in this body, but you will receive the crown of life. You know, there are, there are athletes, boys and girls in the world who for years and years discipline themselves, work, labor, to what end? That they might possibly stand at the podium at the end of the contest and receive the victor the victor's gold medal. In those days, in the athletic endeavors, in the arena of the cities of the great Roman Empire, you would receive a garland, a wreath. But they were always wreaths that, like any gold medal, it eventually fades. Its luster disappears. It doesn't endure. It's not a crown of life from one of whom it can be said he is the first and the last. He died and he lives forever, together with all those who are his, to whom he grants the gift of deliverance from the power of the second death, which is to be cast away from God's presence into the lake of fire, 
forever. Uh, you may ask, brothers and sisters, well, how does this, as I've already suggested, speak to us? If nothing else is gleaned from this letter, let it be this, that you as a Christian pay attention to what your brothers and sisters in many parts of this world, like the church in Smyrna, are even now experiencing. I remember an old lady in a church, didn't call her an old lady, but an older, mature member of the church who uh, signed me up for the, uh, the Martyrs newsletter. I forget the title exactly, but uh, Voice of the Martyrs, Voice of the Martyrs. And so I get it all the time now, ever since. And every week you're told of some place in God's world where Christ's little flock is experiencing great tribulation, much like Smyrna. Pray for your brothers and sisters in the midst of their persecution. Another, by way of application, observation would be this. Be prepared. God forbid we live in a land of still greater justice, peaceableness, and freedom than is enjoyed by most of our brothers and sisters throughout the world. Not as great as it was. And perhaps not as enduring as we might hope. Just to the north of us in the country of Canada, it's becoming increasingly different, difficult not to find yourself as a Christian inevitably up against it. In our country, it becomes necessary for us to pay taxes for things like abortion on demand. Doctors are not permitted to freely exercise their religious convictions in the care and keeping of their patients. Schools are often finding themselves under duress. Business people are sometimes in difficult places. So be prepared, if need be, brothers and sisters, steal yourself by the confident confession that there awaits us a crown of life. We're not subject to the power of the second death. The absolute worst thing that can happen in this world to us is that we should die. But then you receive the victor's crown. That's why in the book of Revelation chapter 20, in that millennium vision, it says those who were martyred, who died for the testimony of Jesus, they came to life, they lived, they reign with Christ in heaven until the day of his coming. And one last comment. Could hold true for all of us. Ask yourself in God's presence, what am I willing to lose, if need be, for Christ's sake? I know what he lost to purchase my redemption. What am I willing to lose, if need be? In that trial that likely will come, <clears throat> that test 
of my loyalty to him. God grant that what our Lord says to the church in Smyrna would be of great comfort and encouragement to us as it has been to God's people throughout the whole history of the church. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that our Lord speaks to the church in every circumstance and place. And he speaks to the church when your people, those who are called by your name, experience tribulation, poverty, slander, even perhaps death. That we are in Christ more than conquerors. That we have a life that cannot be taken from us. That the second death has no hold over us that our Lord is one who speaks words which are words of life, rich in promise. So though by the world's standards we may appear poor, our inheritance in Christ is rich and full. Encourage us, we pray, by that reality. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing our song of response. Is number 408 in the Trinity Psalter hymnal, number 408 for all the saints, stanzas one through five. 